1: I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in.
2: It's 5 a.m. at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here's your top five at five. Investors on edge with the year-end Santa rally looking increasingly unlikely. Futures facing pressure again breaking overnight the bank of japan sending shockwaves through overseas markets as it looks to juice economic growth the latest in just a moment we have some courtroom chaos to report in the bahamas sam Makeman freed's first extradition hearing does not go as planned they'll try again today and will he or won't he elon musk still very much in charge of twitter after more than 16 million twitter users voted that he should step down A new policy change could render those votes moot. And China's COVID crisis continues with some major cities looking more like ghost towns. A live report from Beijing ahead. This is Tuesday, December 20th, 2022. And you're watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good morning, everybody. I'm Contessa Brewer in for Brian Sullivan this morning. Let's kick off this hour with a check on U.S. stock futures after another rough session for the markets yesterday that saw the Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ extending a losing streak to four straight sessions. Futures right now are mixed. You can see the S&P 500 is down just a bit, three points, essentially flat. The Dow Jones Industrials implied opening up 22 points and the NASDAQ implied opening down 20. Let's check the bond market now where yields are edging higher this morning. You've got the two-year yield at 4.276% and the 10-year at 3 3.662 percent. In energy, oil is also lower this morning after snapping a two-session win streak yesterday. WTI is up a full percent right now. Brent is as well. In crypto, Bitcoin is holding steady at just, just sitting below $17,000, up 1.3 percent. Let's get a check on the overnight action in Asia and the early trade in Europe. Juliana Tadelbaum is standing by in our London newsroom. Juliana Big news now from the Bank of Japan.
3: Fantastic. good morning. That's absolutely right. We did see uh, equity markets across the Asian region move lower overnight, and all of that action came on the back of what's happening in Japan. Nikkei 225 ending about 2.5% lower. So the big news, the Bank of Japan deciding to adjust its yield curve control policy. Now, why is this so important? And hopefully we'll give you a look at uh, various Japanese assets as I uh, go through this. Why is this so important? Well, it's widely seen by the market as the beginning of a potential end of its ultra-lose monetary policy. Uh, the Bank of Japan has been a real outlier compared to other central banks, the Fed, the European Central Bank, the Bank of England in terms of uh, tightening policy, and the Bank of Japan now potentially going down that same path. So Nikkei 225 ending 2.5% lower, but important to note that within the Nikkei 225, the Japanese banks saw a very strong bid, investors putting money into the Japanese banks because the expectation is bond yields move higher, and that is a positive for for the banking sector. Uh, meanwhile, you've got uh, the dollar weakening versus the Japanese yen, and a lot of action in Japanese bond yields. You've got yields moving higher across the board, and a lot of these trends are filtering through to Europe. This morning, we're seeing European equity markets sell off in large part as European bond yields move higher. So that is the story across the globe this morning: equities lower, banks outperforming, and bond yields moving higher as that anchor, the Bank of Japan, which has kept borrowing costs low. Uh, may be no more. That could be on the horizon. Contessa? All right, Juliana, thank you
2: for uh, taking us through all of that. Markets back here in the United States bracing for another Tuesday trading session that could be rocky. Recession risks continue to weigh on investor sentiment. Dampening hopes for a year-end Santa rally in these final two trading weeks. With me now is Phil Palumbo, founder, CEO, and CIO of Palumbo Wealth Management. It's good to see you today, Phil. First of all, can I get your reaction? What's happening globally? We've got uh, the China COVID infection soaring as China tries to reverse its zero COVID infection policy. You have the news out of Bank of Japan this morning. How do you think that we're, we're where we're positioning ourselves for a domestic economy? fits into what we're seeing happening internationally.
4: Well, I've been in the camp where you're selling any type of rips in the market all throughout the year. Now I'm in a camp. It's time to buy on any type of dips. And they're really you have to be patient, though, because there's a lot of pain ahead. And the pain's going to come from situations like you see in Japan with yield curve control and reducing that, which is creating tighter monetary policy. So. Why do I use buy buy and pain in the same sentence? The pain is going to come from the tightness with monetary policy all around the world, like we're seeing just now in Japan. And the Fed is telling us here that he's going to continue to keep his foot on the gas and raise interest rates until he gets what he gets. And markets are not really buying into that. The second thing is is we're going to have an earnings recession. Anytime you have PMI data and the Fed doing what he's doing, you get an earnings recession that's still not built into the market. The buy side of the equation comes from the job market. The job market is as tight as we've ever seen it. Joel's numbers is over 10 million. And wages are increases and, increasing and consumers are still flush with cash. So for those reasons, you're going to get another down move in the market, but you have to step in as a long-term investor.
2: We're, we seem to be debating every day here at CNBC whether we have a window for a soft recession landing? You know, is this going to be an easy we flow in, we flow out? And 2023 is looking like, OK, we've escaped with our skin. Or do you think that our window for a soft landing is narrowing?
4: The window for the soft landing is definitely narrowing. What people have to recognize, the, the positive thing about what I just said is the job market is tight. As long as the job market is tight and consumers have cash from COVID, which is about a trillion dollars, which is dwindling down. And the Joltz numbers is over 10 million. If consumers have money, it's tough really to have a hard landing with the economy. So that's the cushion below everything that's going on right now. What I consistently continue to tell investors is this playbook is different. We can't go by the old playbook because of the imbalances that COVID created. And because of that, we have to be nimble as investors. So I look at it like a barbell approach, right? The pain side of the equation is the Fed and the earnings recession and the tightening around the world. And the buy side of the equation is that consumers have money to spend. So you can argue we'll have a mild recession, not really a, a hard recession, as others are forecasting.
2: You, uh, you, I know, look at a lot of this volatility as the uh, area for traders, and you're focused on investors. Where do you think investors should look for opportunity heading into 2023?
4: There's a couple of things. First, from an asset allocation standpoint, rebalancing into gold, I really love that trade going into 2023. I think we saw peak inflation equals peak interest rates equals peak dollar, dollar decelerating, inverse relationship, gold should rise. The volatility we're going to see in first and second quarter is going to be really severe. And with that, you're going to see a flight to gold. Phil That's phil- from an asset
5: allocation. Yeah.
2: Okay, so I just wanted to give you right now, gold is up a full percent sitting at 1816 as we speak. Phil Palumbo, thank you for that.
4: You got it. Thank you.
2: To the nation's capital, a historic day in Washington, D.C., after the House committee investigating the January 6th insurrection made its final public presentation yesterday. It recommended the Justice Department take action against former President Donald Trump and several key allies. NBC's Brie Jackson joins us now. Brie? Good morning, Contessa. Yeah, a historic day indeed. Former President Trump was the first
6: U.S. president to be impeached twice. Now he's also the first American president that Congress has referred for potential criminal charges. Nearly two years after former President Trump's supporters stormed the U.S. Capitol, the House committee investigating the attack made an historic call for accountability, referring Mr. Trump to the Department of Justice for criminal prosecution.
7: We've never had a president of the United States stir up a violent attempt to block the transfer of power.
6: This was an utter moral failure and a clear dereliction of duty. Committee members urging DOJ to consider four criminal charges, obstruction of an official proceeding, conspiracy to defraud the United States, conspiracy to make a false statement, and inciting or assisting an insurrection.
1: If the
8: Justice Department uh, concurs with that assessment and with the evidence, Um, then he should be prosecuted like any other American.
6: The January 6th panel also unveiling new evidence, including a recent interview with Trump's longtime aide, Hope Hicks. He said something
9: along the lines of, um, you know, nobody will care about my legacy if I lose. Um, So that won't matter. Um, The only thing that matters is is winning
6: former president trump who already announced plans to run for president again in 2024 slamming the committee during a radio interview
8: we have uh, all democrats and republicans in very poor standing two of them i mean we, the yeah. whole thing it's a yeah. kangaroo court what can i say
6: and further blasting the panel's work on social media calling it a partisan attempt to sideline him and the republican party And the committee also released a 155-page summary of its findings and plans to release a full report on Wednesday, which will include legislative recommendations. Contessa.
2: Bree, thank you very much for that. When we come back, courtroom chaos in the Bahamas, as Sam bankman Freed tries yet again to waive his rights to fight extradition to the United States. We lay out what's next. Plus, major cities in China look like ghost towns as the country's COVID crisis shows no signs of abating. And later, a rough day for Disney. The stock does something for the first time in 12 months. A busy hour still ahead right here on Worldwide Exchange.
7: What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC.
1: From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at t slash now.
2: We are watching a developing story now out of China where authorities are scrambling to add hospital beds and build screening clinics as a new wave of COVID cases sweeps through the country. The government began dismantling its zero-COVID policy following major public protests. Beijing has now reported five COVID-related deaths today, following two yesterday. The first fatalities officially reported in weeks. Let's get more on what's happening on the ground and bring in Jonathan Cheng, who's the China Bureau Chief at The Wall Street Journal. It's good to talk to you, Jonathan. Number one, when your reporters are out on the ground in China, are they getting a different sense that the deaths, the death toll may be greater than what the government is reporting?
9: Yeah, that's definitely the case. Um, I actually went with one of my colleagues on Friday to a crematorium on the outskirts of Beijing. And there um, we talked to uh, some people who work there. We talked to a family whose mother had uh, just died that morning and just within a few minutes, we had learned of three different COVID deaths that day. Um, and of course, at that point, they hadn't reported any deaths. And so now they've reported, as you say, two and then five. So a total of seven.
2: This uh, appears to me to be uh, shaping up to be something like what the United States saw in the first year of the pandemic when we had first reopened from lockdowns. China has never had this sort of official big, broad reopening What are you expecting to happen throughout China in terms of the local economy? We know that airline travel has jumped as the policies have reversed domestically in China. Do you think that that still is the case if infections are spreading and people are dying?
9: Well, I think the main difference between the U.S. in 2020 and China now is that we have a different variant. And so... You know, China has been talking about how scary COVID is for the last few years, but now they've suddenly turned on a dime and they're saying, look, this Omicron variant, it's not like Delta. It's not like the original coronavirus that we all met you know, nearly three years ago. Um, this is a different beast altogether. And this one is not as bad. And I think it is being borne out here. I mean, we do know that Omicron tends to be uh, more mild than others. I don't want to underplay it or say it's not a big deal but you know for a lot of people if you're younger if you're healthier um it's going to be a few days it can be quite painful for some people but you get through it and so um you know i think the deaths that we saw every one of the three deaths that we heard about the other day were all people 80 and above and of course you know it's winter and so to have this sort of environment you're going to have deaths that are probably higher than the official numbers say um and we just learned today from the national health commission of china that their their definition of a covid death is actually going to be quite narrow and of course that you have that on top of the fact that you know this is not a government that is necessarily incentivized to um you know broadcast all of the all of the covid deaths so you have that dynamic but you do also have the fact that this is a milder variant than some of the ones that we've seen before so Both are at play here.
2: I I, uh, cover casinos. I said and reported yesterday about the concession renewals happening for the casinos in Macau um, and that the quarantine requirements have eased somewhat, that air travel and ferry service is resuming. All tailwinds for these casino companies, Jonathan. I'm just curious do you think that even if the government is opening borders and lifting restrictions, that people are ready in China to resume business as usual?
9: Well, there's definitely pent up demand. I mean, people here have not had any real break for the last three years. I mean, COVID lockdowns have been a fact of life. And so there's undeniable pent-up demand. Um, However, there is that psychological shift that needs to happen. And of course, the government now wants this to to, to shift because the economy has just taken a beating over the last three years. And I don't think people can take it anymore. And so you saw those protests and you saw, um, you know, people are raring to go in a certain sense, but they have to balance that against the fear of getting COVID. And, you know, I do think that one case at a time, people are learning, okay, maybe this Omicron isn't that bad. Maybe... COVID has changed, um, but, you know, that fear is still there among a lot of people. So I think on the one hand, you see a lot of people who really want to go and you're going to see a lot of people who still have that fear.
2: Uh, Jonathan Chang, it's great to talk to you today. Thank you so much for bringing us your perspective. Thanks for having me. Still on deck. Forget about the surging cost of cartons of eggs or gallons of gas. Why residents in one state could be on the precipice of a new price hike crisis. The first half of this year saw traffic fatalities on the rise, even above last year's 15-year high. And in a report released this month, AAA blames more speeding, aggressive, or distracted driving, and especially more drinking and driving. While all those crashes have led to higher costs for auto insurers, and nationwide, they're raising rates. In November, car insurance was up more than 13% over last year, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. That's way more than other sectors that we saw in the CPI. But the insurance industry says California is on the precipice of a car insurance crisis. For Aaron Judge, it's all- 2022 has been a horrific year on the highway and insurers are paying for it. More crashes, more inflation and the highest claims costs in 40 years. Prices for parts and labor have soared. Things like your cost to rent a car, buy a new car, uh, buy a used car. All of those things are up 20 to 40 percent. Across the country, auto insurers have applied to state regulators to raise their rates to compensate. But the trade group that represents those companies says the nation's largest driving market, California, stands out for its unwillingness to tackle the need for increased premiums. And this is a take-all-comer state, so insurers can't just quit offering coverage. Instead, the biggest are trying to fly under the radar. It's not just about savings. It's about the friends we make along the way. Progressive pulled back on its marketing. Geico closed dozens of local offices, and Allstate started requiring customers to pay half of the annual premium up front and stopped allowing independent insurance agents to sell its policies.
4: My insurance agents, frankly, they're they're kind of off in insurance companies right now. But at the same time, they totally understand why. And when insurance companies are forced into a position where they cannot cover their costs, where they're forced into a place where they cannot earn a fair return, they simply stop writing.
2: Only the insurance commissioner, who's elected, can approve a rate hike. The industry says he's dragging his feet. His office disputes that and says it's simply
0: watching out for consumers. Part of protecting consumers is ensuring that you have a solvent and fully functioning competitive marketplace.
2: Well, the California Department of Insurance points to approvals just given in November to Geico and Allstate for a rate hike of 6.9 percent. Allstate says that's the first increase approved in five years, and it needed to be a 16 percent hike to make the math work, according to a Credit Suisse insurance analyst. You can see there the year-to-date performance of the auto insurers, Allstate up 11%, Progressive up 24%, way outperforming the market. Why? It looks like investors are getting ready for these rate hikes to go into effect and for them to really start showing it. But look at Root, which really focuses on direct-to-consumer car insurance, down 91%. It's cut 20% of its workforce and closed offices, really struggling. Ahead, how Apple is looking to shield itself from future supply chain crises stemming from China. Plus a rough session for Disney as that stock does something for the first time in a year. Worldwide Exchange, back right after this. Investors finding little holiday cheer as a potential Santa rally falls flat. Stocks fighting to stop their skid. Elon Musk looking to clamp down on Twitter's polling after the platform's users vote for a new leader at the top. And chaos in the courtroom. Sam Bankman-Fried's extradition hearing reveals, well, how should I put this, confusion among his own legal team, keeping him off U.S. soil, at least for now. It's Tuesday, December 20th, and this is Worldwide Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Contessa Brewer, stepping into Brian Sullivan's rather sizable shoes this morning. It's about 5.30 in the morning, just nearly on the East Coast. Stocks looking to avoid five straight losing sessions. Futures right now, as you can see, are mixed. The S&P just uh, down about three points for an applied open. um, And the Dow Jones Industrials implied opening up 21 points. The Nasdaq is the more negative. But I want to take a moment to point to what is happening with bond yields around the world. You can see there they're, they are all positive. What we saw was a little jolt to the system when the Bank of Japan announced a change to its monetary policy. Of course, it has bucked the trend of tri- tightening that we've seen from other central banks and, and this morning announcing a bit of a change to that policy. So we'll uh, be watching that throughout the day here on CNBC. Here's the action in the Japanese benchmark. You can see that yield now is up uh for japan okay let's get the latest on elon musk his future at twitter and those poll results out yesterday with platform users saying he should step down as ceo musk now may call for a major policy shift he responded to a tweet suggesting that only premium blue subscribers should be the ones voting on major policy related polls due to them having skin in the game to which musk said oh good point Twitter will make that change. Unclear if that shift will have a retroactive effect. Arjun Karpal joins me now with more. Okay, so Arjun, there has been so much attention paid to this right now, Elon Musk. One, did we get any news about a timeline? He said he would stick to the results of this poll. Is he stepping down? When will that happen?
5: Uh, these are these are questions uh, only Elon Musk can answer at this point, Contessa. He did say he would stick by those results. There was no... Uh, 57.5% of those who voted uh, agreed that he should step down. Now there are a lot of suggestions after that from a lot of his uh, his supporters that perhaps those results were skewed because of fake accounts or bots. And you mentioned there one suggestion that actually only those uh, who subscribe to that eight dollars per month Twitter Blue service should have any say in these polls regarding policy. Uh Elon Musk thinks that's a good idea, but we haven't heard anything from him yet. So all. Eyes on what Elon Musk will do next, I think what was interesting when he did the initial poll, uh, and it was a majority uh, saying that he should step down. You saw Tesla shares jump as well. A lot of investors in the electric car maker feel Elon Musk is getting very distracted right now with this Twitter endeavor, and they really need him to get his focus back um, to Tesla. And so uh, there's a lot of implications here, really, if Elon Musk does step down uh, as the head of Twitter, but for now, uh, unclear when he may do so.
2: A lot of opportunities for water cooler chat. Arjun, let's uh, let's talk about the movies a little bit. Um, First of all, we saw Disney shares set to open this morning at a fresh 52 week low. It fell more than four percent yesterday because we got weaker than expected opening weekend numbers for the new Avatar film. Disney stock down more than 40 percent over last year. This was supposed to be a big exclamation mark on this year for Disney. What's going on with this company and and expectations for its blockbuster movies?
5: Well, look, this was a there was huge pressure on this film to perform in the U.S. The one hundred thirty four million opening box office weekend and this expected one hundred and seventy five million. So well short of that, Disney's own cast, uh, forecast was between one hundred and thirty five and one hundred fifty million. One thing I will say, however, is uh to add a bit of context, internationally, it did over $300 million. So, altogether, that was over $400 million bought in. The original Avatar in 2009 bought in $77 million in its opening weekend, so much lower than this, and then went on to become highest-grossing film of all time. So there's still time left, but I think the sort of uh, very quiet start to the film is cause for concern. Disney has a number of issues right now, of course. Firstly, it, it's streaming service. There is so much more competition in the market now, and Disney Plus is one player amongst a myriad of other players vying for users' dollars and eyeballs as well. So that's one big challenge. Of course, theme parks as well. Um They've had some disruptions in places like China with the Shanghai Disneyland Resort. There's some other uh, theme parks haven't fully recovered at this point. And, of course, movie theatres have not fully recovered at this point. So lots of headwinds. For Disney this year and going into 2023, of course, with Bob Iger back at the helm, investors are hoping he can sort of uh, narrate some sort of turnaround story. But clearly uh, there are some bigger headwinds at play here for Disney going into next year. Well,
2: and I would add, too, that there's a lot of speculation about ESPN and whether it will indeed partner up with a sports betting platform here in the United States to uh, to to take a piece of that action. But it's rather late to the party. I mean, the, the gold rush has begun and people are already staking out people. Companies are already staking out their claim. Uh, the other story that, Arjun, I wanted to talk to you about, Apple reportedly planning to move some of its production operations for MacBooks to Vietnam. It would be the first time and that would start next year. We got a new report from Nikkei that the move could start as early as May. and And really, this is part of what the tech giant is doing to diversify production away from China at at this point. You can see Apple shares in the extended trade down two tenths of a percent. Talk a little bit about diversifying where you're producing your products.
5: Yeah, I think for Apple, really, this year has been a real eye-opener because of what happened in China. The country's continued zero COVID policy And the fact that it relies so heavily on one factory in a city called Zhengzhou run by its manufacturing partner, Foxcorn. What we saw there was some COVID outbreaks at the factory, massive disruptions and protests at the way the company handled the COVID outbreak at the factory. And that analysts are saying could have big implications for Apple's iPhone production in this fourth quarter of the, the year, this crucial holiday season. I think that's really accelerated Apple's plans to diversify some of its production out of china where it's relied so heavily macbooks uh, are the ones being reported next moving to vietnam but you've already seen some other products uh, be produced elsewhere as well apple was now beginning to make some iphones in india which is seen as a very crucial future growth market for the company you've now got macbooks of course in vietnam and some other products that process will continue as apple diversifies to make sure it can hedge against some of these risks it's seeing in china
2: arjun karpal it's so nice to talk to you today thank you so much for joining us Here we are again, Sam Bankman-Fried expected in court in the Bahamas later this morning to surrender himself to U.S. feds, but it was total chaos in the courtroom yesterday. Mackenzie Sagalos joins us to break down what went wrong yesterday in Nassau.
0: Hey, Contessa, so far Sam Bankman-Fried's legal team has pretty much fumbled what is among the largest financial criminal prosecutions of this decade On Monday, Bankman-Fried's Bahamian lawyer, Jerome Roberts, was totally misaligned with Bankman-Fried's American lawyers, led by Mark Cohen. SBF's local counsel said he was, quote, shocked that Bankman-Fried was in court at all, adding that his client wanted to see the indictment against him before agreeing to be extradited. That was the exact opposite of what everyone in that room was expecting, including the local prosecutor. Now, Contessa, a source familiar with the matter says that Bankman-Fried, who spent last night in the Fox Hill prison in Nassau, yet again, is expected to make an appearance at another court hearing in the Bahamian capital at 10 a.m. Eastern, where he is supposed to forfeit his extradition rights. The Wall Street Journal reporting that Bankman-Fried's local lawyer agreed to draft the necessary extradition paperwork following yesterday's chaotic exchange in court. It's not clear what involvement bankman Freed's U.S. attorneys have had so far. We've tried multiple times to get in touch with them. We're not hearing back. So frankly, until I see bankman fried on a tarmac in New York, I will remain skeptical that extradition is actually happening. Although, you know, what's interesting is that experienced
2: high-level attorneys tend to avoid reporters and talking to them. Uh, and it's, you know, it maybe those who are less experienced who would be engaging with um, global journalists at this point. Yeah. If if your sources are to be believed and Bankman Fried will be able to hand himself over
0: or plans to hand himself over, what's the next step? So if Bateman Fried goes through with this and waives his extradition rights, the process will take some time logistically, but will be significantly quicker than if he fought the order. There's definitely a push to get him here back on U.S. soil as soon as possible, should this all go according to plan later this morning. Now, once he arrives in the U.S., a former senior government lawyer tells me that he will likely be held, at least temporarily, at the Metropolitan Detention Center in New York, and crucially, his first hearing should be held within 24 to 72 hours of Bakman frieds arrival. That's when he'll enter a plea of guilty or not guilty to those eight criminal charges. It's also when we'd see a bail hearing.
2: And also when you'll get to see some action outside of the courtroom, Mackenzie. <laughs> the, the the press scrums that happen outside of that place can be incredible. We also are getting reports that maybe Bakman fried negotiated for certain bail conditions in exchange for agreeing to surrender to U.S. Feds. The Bahamians clearly are rejecting multiple requests at granting bail. Mm-hmm. And, and listen, I know people who have spent time in Bahamian jails, totally separate story, but they said the conditions were abysmal. What's he up against?
0: Right. So I'm hearing from multiple legal experts that they anticipate Bateman fried will likely plead not guilty and push for release pending trial That being said, he faces the same uphill battle as he did in the Bahamas, where he was denied bail just a few days ago. He was in the process of appealing that decision when we received word that he was going to agree to extradition. Essentially, he's been labeled a a flight risk, in part because of the billions of dollars in missing FTX customer money. Now, whether Bankman-Fried's lawyers actually waived extradition in exchange for agreeing to bond conditions in advance... Bankman-Fried's camp wouldn't weigh in on the record. I spoke to a former federal cybercrime prosecutor, and he thinks that lawyers for Bankman-Fried will cite his lack of a prior record to make the case for bail. But they would likely have to put up a whole lot to secure his pretrial release, including millions of dollars, property, and agreeing to house arrest with electronic monitoring. And even that is further complicated by the fact that it's quite difficult to determine what assets the defendant actually controls right now and is even allowed to pledge as his own.
2: Yeah, you have to wonder whether uh, the, the folks who are currently in charge of trying to figure out where FTX assets are would be up for some of those assets being used to secure uh, bail conditions. Mackenzie, thank you for the reporting. Appreciate it. Coming up, the big comeback for workers returning to the office, falling flat. It's creating new problems for New York's economy. Robert Frank dives into zombie buildings plaguing the Big Apple when Worldwide Exchange returns. Welcome back. Expectations for New York City's office buildings to come back to life, fill with people. It turns out that it's not really happening like that. In many cases, offices are still less than 50% occupied. And it's creating a crisis of zombie buildings. Robert Frank joins us with more. It kind of sounds like the start of a horror film. What you're saying is it is actually scary for New York City's economy.
10: Yeah, if you look at some of these REIT stocks, Contessa, it is a bit of a horror film right now. There is over 100 million square feet of empty or leasable space in Manhattan. That's equal to 40 empty Empire State buildings. Remote work and the pandemic migration is part of the reason Only about half of Manhattan's office workers are back in the office. That number basically has not moved since September. But the big worry right now is layoffs, especially in tech. Got Meta, Amazon, Google, and Twitter all among the biggest new leasers of office space during the pandemic. Now Meta is laying off over 800 employees in New York and it's vacating over 250,000 square feet of new space that it just took over in Hudson Yards, Twitter laying off 400 people in Manhattan, unclear what it will do with its 140,000 square feet of space in Chelsea, and then Amazon cutting its planned space in Hudson Yards as well. The new buildings, that A sort of class of buildings, they're they're fine, they're strong, but analysts say the older buildings it's the class B and C buildings They're headed for much tougher times. Owners are now faced with soaring renovation costs to keep their tenants, rising borrowing costs from rising interest rates, and tenants are leaving in record numbers. The concern here is that these older zombie towers will just be left empty until or if workers return and these owners decide to renovate these buildings so they become more attractive. Contessa,
2: are are the tenants leaving for other places out of state? Are they leaving for other newer buildings in Manhattan? Are they leaving to negotiate cheaper rent elsewhere?
10: It's a little bit of both Contessa. You've got some people simply downsizing. So they're taking less space in these existing class B and C buildings. Some are upgrading to newer buildings, which have very attractive leasing rates. I mean, prices have fallen, though, not enough. And then some of them simply are just not having offices in New York City anymore. Maybe they're having a satellite office in Connecticut or New Jersey, but they're just not taking space in Manhattan. So it's a mix of all that. But there is clearly, if you listen to the governor and the mayor of New York City, a crisis, especially in the business district to figure out what to do with the space can you convert enough of it, for instance, into residential to fill them up? That's very expensive. It takes a long time. So this is going to be a big problem that right now shows no signs of easing.
2: Robert Frank, great to talk to you. Thanks. On nice. deck is a potential Santa Claus rally on hold. Jenny Harrington and Don Stolpitz are standing by with their ideas on where to make money in these final weeks of 2022. You've got to do it fast. Let's get it in fast. Two weeks. And if you haven't already, follow our podcast. If you miss Worldwide Exchange, you can check us out on Apple, Spotify, or other podcast apps. And we will be right back. Welcome back, everybody. Time now for your WEX Wrap-Up. Six stories you may have missed as we close in on the 6 o'clock hour, and here we go. Markets in Asia closing sharply lower after Japan's central bank's surprise change to its yield curve policy in a bid to ease some costs of its prolonged monetary stimulus. There you're seeing the Nikkei off 2.5%. Congress unveiling a $1.7 trillion government spending package just days ahead of the new deadline to reach a deal to avoid a shutdown. Lucas is raising $1.5 billion via an equity, or Lucid rather, an equity offering. The majority of that cash coming through a private sale of nearly 86 million shares to an affiliate of its largest investor, Saudi Arabia's public investment fund. It's up 4.43% in the early trade. The U.S. Navy awarding Amazon Web Services a five-year enterprise software license contract that's worth more than $720 million, giving the Navy access to Amazon's training and certification courses. And Boeing 737 MAX models are expected to receive exemption from Congress from a new cockpit requirement taking effect next week. The rules would have forced an expensive redesign and lengthy certification delays for Boeing. Boeing right now is unchanged in extended trading. And despite worries about inflation in the economy, Americans are not scrimping on Christmas trees. And my goodness, the prices can be shocking. The National Christmas Tree Association expects nearly 21 million people are buying trees, or is that 21 million live trees sold to people on par with last year. But as I said, I got sticker shock. Gearing up for the trading day ahead, here's what's on the agenda on the economic front. We have housing starts, building permits, and Philadelphia Fed non-manufacturing figures all out at 8.30 this morning, Eastern Time. And a few high-profile earnings today with results from General Mills, FedEx and Nike. So we should get a good sense of the domestic economy from those earnings reports. We're also keeping an eye on the FTX bankruptcy hearing, which begins in just a couple of hours. That's 10 a.m. Eastern Time. Founder Sam Bankman fried due back in court in the Bahamas again today. His hearing a bit chaotic. Uh, Again, we will be hearing his lawyers tackle the issue of his extradition to the United States. And let's get a look at how the trading day is shaping up now after stocks extended their losing streak yesterday. Futures right now mixed. You're seeing the S&P in the red. It looks like the implied open down five points. The Dow Jones futures up eight. And you've got the Nasdaq futures down 26 points. Joining me now, John Stoltzfitz, chief investment strategist at Oppenheimer Asset Management, and Jenny Harrington, the CEO of Gilman Hill Asset Management and a CNBC contributor. It's good to talk to both of you today, but John, I wanted to start with you because we got this breaking news from the Bank of Japan that indicated it's going to slightly tweak its cap on its yields for the 10-year. For the Can you explain why we were seeing global bond yields spiking after that announcement?
8: Yes. Uh, uh, hi, Contessa. Thanks for having me on the show this morning. I've got to say that what, what, what you have seen around the world has been central banks tightening, and the outlier was the Bank of Japan. Now, the, the process of their beginning to move in with the others really uh, simply means that now it's it's all the majors are in the process of hiking rates. Ultimately, it's probably a very positive thing because it's the end of free money free money raises speculation high leverage momentum trading this could really take us back to a more fundamental point it's not that leverage will disappear interest rates are not that high if we look at it historically I've been in this business 39 years so I can remember stocks moving higher with yields a heck of a lot higher than they are today early in my career but uh, when we look at it we think it's actually a positive but of course it creates volatility, as we've already seen this morning.
2: Yeah, we and we did see even the uh, the U.S. Treasury yield spiking uh, six points or so on that news. Uh, let me ask you, Jenny. When we're looking at inflation, it's a problem in Japan. It's a problem in Europe. It's a problem globally. And here we still see a Fed that seems intent on tackling it through. And and one of my previous guests this morning said uh, through making sure. That unemployment is not so um, so low that we don't have so many job openings. That the wage inflation factor has something that that has to be tackled at this point. Where do we head from here uh, into in twenty twenty three?
7: Well, from a market perspective, I, I agree that it's um, I agree that it's actually healthier to have to have higher interest rates. And so we're just in this like really messy, really kind of difficult time to get through because. I look at it like the Fed is just delivering medicine. We've been raging at a party for way too long, the party got out of control, and they're delivering medicine. So we've had the worst of the medicine. And they've said, like, look, you know, we're past the se- past fi- 75 basis point hike, 50. Now we've got 25s coming. So we're kind of on the downside of that. So where we stand is I think we're just in this digestion period. And what you know as an investor is that the numbers don't matter as much as knowing what the numbers are going to be. Yeah, give us that 50, fine. Give us a few more 25s, let us get through this. So, so where we are is getting closer to understanding where inflation's really going to end up, how long it's going to really last and at what level. I've seen some really interesting charts that show that strategists all think in an inflationary environment, that inflation goes like this, and then it comes right back down and then plateaus. And that's what strategists think. But in past inflationary times, what really happens is inflation spikes up, and then it actually takes a very long time to kind of plateau out and reach a steady state, get back to maybe 2% or 2.5%. So I think we're in this adjustment period of just understanding that and being able to work that into, as portfolio managers, work that into our, into our um, valuation models. And I, I really do think that as a... As a money manager, whether you're buying bonds or stocks, having a functional risk-free rate of return is really useful. You can actually run discounted cash flow models and get real numbers again. So even though this is hard, it's not bad for the long run.
2: John, how are you looking at fixed income heading into 2023 and the opportunities there?
8: Well, the good news is once uh, we return to a period where bond buyers are getting something uh, back in terms of the yield when they buy a bond, and bond issuers have to pay for the privilege of borrowing money, which is much healthier. Uh, right now, though, what we see is many yields are still below the, the inflation rate, so you have real negative rates still in effect. But as inflation comes down, uh, that is likely, you know, to uh, move towards a more normalized position. Uh, we, we keep sticking to shorter durations. The short end of the curve is signaling the Fed is going to move for longer. The intermediate to longer uh, positions on the yield curve are suggesting that the Fed is going to be successful based on the yields we're seeing you know, where the, the 10-year Treasury is off its highs. Uh, we would have to say yeah. that what this says is you're going to get some success here. That points to things are working. The main point, I, I certainly agree with your other guest, is, is what we are seeing here is action is being taken against inflation with commitment. Mm and not brutal at that, it's just adequate so far.
2: John, I see that you have a nominal exposure to gold. Jenny, some of your best ideas include exposure to other metals, namely aluminum.
7: Right, so that one of the, the company that you're referring to, Contessa, is Ardaw, and they make aluminum cans. That's actually not a play on aluminum. It's a play on aluminum can making, and it's also a play on stocks that have been completely thrown out. So this is this is an aluminum can maker. They have a 9% dividend yield. It came public a year and change ago in a SPAC structure. Everybody hates SPACs and turned on them. So this stock, because it was associated with that, got completely thrown out and, and treated as if it was nothing. And you also like Uber but, and Palo Alto? You know, probably each one of us.
2: Uber and Palo Alto? Yeah.
7: Um, right. Not metals plays. Yeah. These are The reason I gave you that list was I was thinking, okay, this is a really tough environment, and we're still waiting to see how things flush out. So where are places that you can invest right now where there's certainty of cash flows, certainty of return, a lot of clarity? And so Uber, for example, Uber turns enormously free cash flow positive next year. Palo Alto has a 6% free cash flow yield. These two aren't dividend stocks. They're in our growth strategy. But... Um, Did- a six percent free cash flow yield, and when when the CIOs of different companies are being are being pinched, they can't do software. Sorry, they can't do like Jenny, customer relations. John, relations, i I'm, We'll pinch, leave it yes, there. Sorry, contest, thank, you for the, here th- th- thank you for the
2: thank you for the great ideas. Thank you both for joining me this morning. That does it for Worldwide Exchange. And Squawk Box is next.
1: You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at five a.m. Eastern only on CNBC.